Right. So after Labour's devastating defeat, what does this now mean for the UK and for the left? I think two things. The first is that we saw in this uh, result a realignment of British politics at a fairly fundamental level. The Tories are now the working class party in Labour, liberal middle class party. And the other thing it meant is that there's really no British left who was arguing for class and who was arguing for democracy. Um, very, very short list. I think the Tories will be in power for 10 years um, as a result of this. I can't see that the Labour Party will be able to recuperate um, and reassemble itself within the next um, within the next five years. So I think the Tories are going to be in power for another 10 years. I think for the left more generally, I think the most significant fact of it is the fact that northern working class voters um, who didn't vote for Labour in this election have made a bid for political independence. And that is something which is a progressive outcome of the election, the fact that they've shattered Labour hegemony in Britain. And that, I think, is um, that all leftists should think through the implications of that bid for political independence and the fact that the working class effectively is more politically advanced or the working class voters in those constituencies in north, in the north, in Wales, in the Midlands, are more politically advanced than all the intersectionalist intellectuals and um, left neoliberal academics who still cling to the Labour Party as the only vehicle for their political hopes. Hello, hello, hello. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga. As promised, we are back with a post-UK election show, rounding up uh, a very shocking victory for the Tories, uh, who managed to get a larger majority than many predicted, uh, possibly than we ourselves predicted. So what we're going to do here today is look back at what we predicted and say how we were wrong, because we're honest like that, uh, and also survey many of the reasons for which Labour lost and the Tories won, and look at the reactions to this, what will happen next, what this means for the UK, what it means for Brexit, and finally, what it means for the so-called left populist project uh, around the world, around Europe, and as well as in the US. So I'm Alex Hochuli, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, obviously very well placed to comment on such issues. Uh, much better placed are George Hoare in London and Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury. Guys, how's it going? And what did you do on election night? What were you up to? Phil? Well, uh, I got a very kind invite from um, some random guy who is hosting an election party in London. Uh, which I declined because um, the closer it got to election day itself with the polls tightening, um, I expected it was going to be a damp squib. Um, so to that degree, I didn't. Um, I decided I would just uh, stay home, catch the exit poll and then uh, turn in. And uh, then suddenly the exit poll turned out to be much more dramatic um, than anybody anticipated. And so it turned out to be in uh, a climactic evening indeed. Right. Yeah, Philly so, no mates. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, as the organizer of that, um, <laughs> that election party, which um, Phil was not the only person uh, to cancel on it, um, just mates. believing that it would be a bit of an anticlimax. <laughs> At least, and I'm, I'm, that's my explanation. I'm, I might just be like Toby Young, organizing parties and nobody comes. Um, but yeah, no, and it, it uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was it don't, was don't 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 tell him, Alex. Don't tell him um it was it was quite a, a dramatic evening i think when the the um <clears throat> the exit poll came out that was it was really very surprising um and yeah i apologize i'm a little bit 
horse um, <clears throat> today because it was in the in the hospital overnight. It's all all uh, yeah. all fine. Um, yeah. So my girlfriend got uh, an ear um, ear pain, and yeah, went used the NHS. It, they were actually fantastic. You know, got got to the uh, got to the hospital, got seen straight away. Um, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately, now we're in. The, the Johnson regime, she would have That's had to over. have been put down. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You go to the hospital with mild ear pain. Sorry, you're not productive anymore. I just take you out back, bang, bolt in the head. It's okay for you to laugh, okay. George, but that's because you're white. You're not like, you don't appreciate the fact that there's a Nazi racial supremacist state that's taken over now. Um, and you're privileged, so. Well, yeah, then don't yeah i'm not sure about that but yeah definitely um i think nhs as always very very good so thanks to people that we were seen by yesterday i shouldn't have voted tory then should you have george it's all your fault well we can uh, we can get into that (laughs) uh right so let's actually get started and with the more analytical stuff first of all looking at reasons for labor's defeat or the tories win i think we could probably start off right now and assert that this was a Labour defeat rather than a Tory win. I had a quick look at the numbers before. Uh, compared to the 2017 election, the Tories increased their absolute number of votes by around 300,000 uh, or one percentage point. Uh, so not much difference there, whereas Labour went from 12,000, uh, excuse me, 12,800,000 votes to 10,200,000 votes, or a fall of over 2 million votes. Uh, Otherwise, it's a fall from 40% to 32% of the vote. So I think it's very clear that Labour lost, and that happened especially in very decisive seats where the so-called Red Wall in the Midlands and the North especially fell, where areas that hadn't voted Labour ever or hadn't voted Labour in 75 years. Uh, voted, Tory, Tory, excuse Tory, me, Tory. Who hadn't voted Tory for 75 years went Tory for the first time. Uh, so that's very dramatic. Uh, it's more the- It's more dramatic than that, though, even there, like because it's not just that um, it's places which haven't returned to Tory ever or for um, generations, but also constituencies where the miners fight, you know, the miners' um, strike was... Um, brutally crushed and if you know places where it was effectively a mini civil war between um the met that were drafted in to help local police forces suppress striking miners to break up pickets um to let in scabs so i mean it's not just kind of um that they haven't returned a tory mp but a site of a tremendous um historic defeat for organized labor has now returned Tory parliamentarians. And that, I think, yeah. is um, truly, truly striking. Yeah, people who um, literally fought the Tories, quite literally yeah. fought the Tories, then decided to vote for the Tories, or at least vote for the, La- the Brexit party, or decide not to vote for labor because they couldn't invest their trust and hopes in labor. So there are two, I suppose, two riders to what you said, Alex. So um, about the so it's a small increase in the Tory uh, in the kind of Tory popular vote, but it's they are building on a strong showing in the last election. So they had made gains during the last election, um, and Theresa May in particular, despite being such a lackluster prime minister in so many ways, had made inroads into the. Um, old the old kind of blue collar working class vote already so she'd already established a bridgehead for boris johnson um that said you know there was very little to the tory campaign 
and its centerpiece um, was designed to appeal to um, it kept it was designed to appeal to leavers um, to the leave vote so to um, annex people who were drifting towards the Brexit party to capture Labour leavers um, but also I think to keep in Tory Remainers and that was another aspect of the vote which was interesting was that um, Labour leavers defected while Tory Remainers people who supported the European Union but nonetheless kept voting Tory and I think that the slogan the Tory slogan in the campaign which was get Brexit done um, very cannily appealed to those two groups with its um, profoundly kind of const artfully constructed ambivalence though the main yeah, message I mean, is it has nothing else I mean the main message of the Tory campaign was essentially to depoliticize Brexit to put it behind us and not to use it as a um, as an instrument of political democratic national renewal rather to shut the door on it and that was enough I think to appeal to people who are sickened with parliamentary shenanigans, the, para the moral paralysis and prevarication of the political class, um, and exhaustion with the, um, with the failure to enact the Brexit vote for three years. Yeah, I think that's important that the, the, the pitch um, that the Tories made to their, to their base was, was enough to keep people who, you know, Tory Remainers who are not probably particularly ideological about it and just thought, yeah, okay, we've had enough of this. Let's just get over this and get back to some of these other policies that we like. Um, but also obviously appealing to just enough labor levers or perhaps actually demonstrating that the, the factors that are stopping what getting Brexit done as the, the Tory um, slogan put it are, are really the labor party. So I guess kind of pointing out that, <clears throat> that, challenge for Labour leavers what what do you do when actually it's it's your party it's Labour who are the the main party of Remain right and I think before we get into that in a little bit more depth later on uh, it's worth pointing out that some of the exit polling sustains the points that Phil and, and George have just been making which is that the reasons why people voted for Labour the Lib Dems or the SNP the number one cited reason was I trust the motives of these parties Whereas the main reasons for voting Tory was because they'll get Brexit done and trusting the main, the motives of the Tory party did not figure in any of the top three cited reasons. Um, obviously, they were giving a list of options. It's not just a spontaneous response. But I mean, I think that's quite stark. Basically, people do not trust the Tories. The idea that uh, they're widely liked and trusted, uh, at, which sometimes is a, a sort of defeatist left-wing perspective on matters, isn't actually true. It's just the fact that they promised, as Phil said, to get Brexit done, uh, or they didn't trust Labour, rather than um, there being some overwhelming like for the Tories. I mean, yeah, I think that's... that's... It was Labour's, without a doubt, I mean, Labour's loss, um, more than uh, more than a substantive Tory victory um, and that it's just been that it's come to that point where Labour's kind of suffered um, repeat setbacks and defeats over several, um, you know, several generations, I suppose, now in different ways, depending on how you how you understand Labour politics and that those defeats now have lost them the their kind of traditional so-called hardlands Um and it also brings to mind something that Peter Mandelson, who is famously uh, Tony Blair's um, kind of uh, the eminence gris of new of new Labour, Tony Blair's um, shadowy kind of um, prince behind 
power behind the throne, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, um, and he said he said they have nowhere to go. And that was the basis of Blairite's electoral strategy was always that they would be able to capture enough votes in old labor areas that they would have strongholds from which they could sally out in order to capture a middle class vote in the southeast um, and in other parts of the country. And now, so, you know, the Blairite strategy was always based on being able on the um, loyalty of of um, their northern former industrialized strongholds and they've lost that now so it's not it's not a vindication for um i mean i suppose this takes us into the next part of our conversation which is looking at the various explanations for the defeat um Mm -hmm. and the blairite one would be that we've um drifted too far towards a a program a radical left program of nationalization and increased state spending which means that we've lost the center and we can only win from the center but that i think is um it's mistaken because we can see it in the Tory economic policy. So very quickly, Boris Johnson has um, rushed to lock down the newfound gains in the North by making immediate promises on greater state spending and on defending the NHS. So far from all the shrill screeching from the um, intersectionalists left, from o- from Owen Jones, Ash Sarkar, and all Paul right, Mason. All right, all right. Hang on, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. You know, you, we, we, otherwise, we just throw out the whole agenda because you know we're, we're we're jumping through everything here. Let, let's 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 build up the case. Let's get there. Let's Phil, get there. Phil's got fire in his belly. Yeah, you know, he wants to. <laughs> He's been waiting let, let, for, for years for all this. Let's, let's let me no. so let me finish the point because I think it would be. It's a good point. So because they were it. they were saying there will be hard right neoliberal austerity. Right. And that's clearly not going to be the case with the Johnson government. So the point being that um, the Johnson government already disproves the Blairite critique of the Labour Party's defeat. So the Labour Party, the Blairite tradition was based on accommodating to the Tory kind of neoliberal program. It was on being Thatcherite, essentially. The Tories have abandoned Thatcherism in favour of one nation Toryism. So the Blairites, um, you know, their um, their program effectively has been shredded, not by Jeremy Corbyn, but by the Tory party. And it was always a strategy that was based on having strongholds, like I say, from which you could sally out in order to capture middle class votes. They have no power bases left from which they can now from which they can triangulate. So, OK, so let, let's, um, let, let's go. Let's go through this, because there is a point about power bases uh, which needs to be made. So the first uh, observation, I guess, because it's not a, a great analytical point, but it's just basically, what does the picture of the UK look like? You've got a London Labour, you've got, or rather, Labour London. You have a Tory England, and you have an SNP Scotland. Uh, the map is very yellow in Scotland. The SNP won, I think, forty nine of fifty six seats. If that, if I've got my numbers correct, uh, that as to the and Tory, Tory annexation of Wales as well. Exactly. And and the only exception really within England to a, a Tory England is within metropolitan centres and Merseyside, which remains a stronghold of Labourism, uh, which isn't reflected in the, in the rest of the country. Um, and I think a lot of people have criticised yeah. this for being a very London-based campaign. I mean, this is within Labour people being self-critical and saying that it was too London, which I think I think we can accept. Um, but if you... Yeah, if you look at the the um, places where Labour actually gained seats, I mean, Putney being the the signal example of this, there was a clear. Um, I mean, the decision was clearly made. Let's um, the real threat is the Lib Dems. So let's protect against the Lib Dems. Let's double down on Remain. Let's appeal to our metropolitan base. Um, and so that did uh, <laughs> very very limited successes um, in London were were achieved by Labour. I mean, I think this this. Longer term trajectory is absolutely important to, to for us to 
to discuss a little bit because so many of the explanations are just people who who don't seem to have any grasp of the the recent history of the Labour Party and either blame Corbyn or blame some other factors. But yeah, sorry to sorry to to cut in there, but they did oh, make no. some gains. Yeah, no, they did, and I think it's, many. And no, and but they, they retained, they retained one, and they retained an important gain from. Um, uh, they retained an important gain from the last election, which was a surprise victory in my constituency of Canterbury and Whitstable. Um, and it's part of the broader realignment, which we'll talk about as well. But the fact, so it's not just, um, so Labour is, uh, you know, Labour is the party, whereas it used to be the party of Scotland and Northern England and Wales. Um, it's now the party of English cities and university towns concentrated, um, particularly in the southeast. And uh, Canterbury, which was a margin, which was a marginal constituency in this election, which has just happened, was a surprise victory in the previous election in 2017. Um, they retained that, and they retained that because it's a shift. It shows their shift towards um, a particular uh, middle class, which is to say, um, academics, uh, cosmopolitan-minded uh, academics, uh, pro-EU um, areas of the country, and students, the student body. Oh, cosmopolitan that, that academics like like yourself <laughs> i mean that that yeah no we probably shouldn't put too strong a point on that it's not as if academics are a significant constituency in the uk but education well in levels, university ed- towns right exactly are, yeah. education level correlates quite strongly so you might be working class uh maybe the upper end of the working class or downwardly mobile middle class but you are a graduate and that tends uh to push you towards labor which is uh relates also to no, 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 but, to, to a second let me, hang on let me no, but let me. I think it, there's a point correction because uh, I think, and particularly for our, you know, for listeners outside of the UK, to appreciate just how much um, universities dominate in these kind of uh, university towns, because they're large employers. So the university is the largest employer in the constituency, um, my university. Um, so you know, I mean, there's a whole kind of. Um, uh, it's not just kind of academics, but academics are the kind of core of a much larger, larger kind of um, base of uh, people who will share many of the same kind of outlooks, um, you know, people who work in university administration, for instance, you know, so it's it's not just a, the academics aren't a constituency, they are a constituency, because they form a solid kind of um, cadre of labor votes, and but also come with a whole host of other people who work in these large universities in university towns. Okay, so I Let's move on from, because that's a geographical point. There's a second one, which is a generational one. Uh, the picture is very stark. If you look at the charts on this, people who are 18 to 24 overwhelmingly vote Labour. I mean, the map looks almost entirely red uh, if you only count the votes of 18 to 24-year-olds. Uh, even looking at 25 to 49-year-olds, I think that's the demographic split. Uh, it's still quite red, and Labour would have won the election. Uh, but then if you look at any of the demographics older than that, especially when you include retirees, pensioners, uh, it's very blue. And of course, the old tend to vote more or more reliable voters. Uh, and of course, then the, the Tories win. I mean, so to discuss this a little bit further, what do we think is the significance of this? I mean, does it sh- signal a generational shift in terms of younger voters will continue to be loyal to the Labour Party or will continue to vote more left or more liberal? Um, yeah. Or I mean, is it, it does. That, 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 is, that is a momentary kind of development. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in some ways impossible fully to predict. I mean, it does. I made a bit of a... <clears throat> 
uh, kind of facetious point that it it seems like this Labour's um, strategy now is going to be the long march through the graveyards, just waiting for the older people to die off, those Brexit <laughs> voters, those Tory yeah. voters, and then just expect younger people um, as they age to to retain the same um, political which, values which, and attitudes. Which they won't, right? I mean, I think also the important point being that they um, they're going to see. I think a lot of the a lot of the of the youth vote for Labour are going to see that all the shrill screeching, which you tried to shut me down on before, Alex, all the shrill screeching about how Britain was <laughs> was going to be a um, was going to be a hard right um, neoliberal dystopia under a Boris Johnson government. Um, they'll see that that was a lie. Um, they'll see a multi-ethnic, um, a multi-ethnic cabinet. They'll see the fact of uh, Tory kind of one nation policies. And quite a few of them, I imagine, will drift um, towards more kind of centrist uh, views as they get older. So Labour kind of vesting itself in demography, which is what the Democrats did, and it didn't work out for them in America. Um, I think they will probably do that. They'll be strongly tempted to do that, and they'll be mistaken in doing so as well. The problem is that it it's always um, verified in the future. So it's, you know, it's 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 such a yeah, it's a way of deferring political accountability. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and failing to take responsibility. I think that the the, um, and it's also a way to say the problem was with with the voters. Let's analyse by by all these demographic factors and see who didn't vote for us, and obviously they are therefore wrong. They are they they have deficient understandings or um low in, they're low engagement voters as the uh, as one of the euphemistic phrases puts it um and i think it's you know it's it's uh, is of course interesting and useful and essential to look at who's like where where are the the bases of the different parties but as a political strategy um i don't think it's you know not up to very much all right so that's geography and demography dealt with um the third point we should discuss is class. Uh, so just, I think there's a, just to give a little bit of a preview on this, there's been a lot of discussion, I think, over uh, the past couple of years, over the Corbyn period, that on the one hand, people will point out that, look, labor is losing uh, the working class and is gaining the middle class. And the look at especially polling based on, you know, kind of sociological marketing categories, a, B, C, 1, and C, 2, D, E, uh, and we'll use that as evidence for, for this kind of shift, almost flipping around of, of the kind of class relationships and uh, class alliances to parties. There are people on the left who will go back and say, well, this doesn't really capture class because many people who are C1, who are white-collar workers, are actually very much working class. It's just the new working class. It's not the old industrial working class. So, for example, someone who would be classed as C1 could be a temp working in an office with very uh, insecure employment status, very much part of, of the working class, uh, but who gets counted as middle class according to these categorizations. Someone who's made this argument, for example, would be Ash Sarkar of Novara Media. She made an argument in The Guardian. I think this really disregards the fact that there's a lot of other sociological work which looks at other measures of class and shows very clearly that uh, the working class is in many ways abandoning labor and uh, that labor is gaining amongst um, sections of the middle class. One of the arguments put forward in the FT in its roundup of the election, uh, this was yesterday, looked at various different correlations. The thing that they saw that correlated most strongly with Tory wins was 
low-skilled workers. So the places where there's more low-skilled workers correlated with Tory wins and uh, vice versa. So Putney, which was already cited as an example of the only labor gain in the country, is uh, obviously has a very low share of low-skilled workers and it went for labor. So I think the picture is very clear there in class terms and can't be shied away from however many kind of particularities or little exceptions that you might, might want to make that in fact it's white collar workers and blah, 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 blah. I don't think you can ignore that overall picture and that overall shift. No, no I think, I think it's an extremely significant election for this, for this reason that, I mean, pretty much however you define working class, the, the Tories picked up more working class votes. Um, and I think, but I think there's a deeper problem here. That's basically the left or labor doesn't, it's not an insufficient or sociological understanding of class, like which categories are right or which um, definitions are right. But there's just no political understanding of class. So there's a, and basically the way that I think the left in Britain treats the working class is as an object of politics. So if you look at the Labour Manifesto, there's lots of material gains for working people, which can be, um, you know, you can get behind to a certain extent. Um, but there's no um, understanding of the working class is subject to politics. There's no attempt to empower people um, through, basically through through the vote, Brexit. through democracy, through 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 Brexit. And I mean, that's you're not going to have a, a working working class party that says to people, the one thing that you have, which gives you the most power in society, which is your vote, is, is meaningless. And so you know that you're just not going to get anywhere if you don't start from from that approach to to class. And that's what I think a lot of the the liberal left commentators. Um, really are, are never going to be able to do. They're never going to want to empower the working class because fundamentally they don't trust them. They think they're they're fascists and they don't they don't like them culturally. They're very, they're too different for a number of reasons. Anyway, that's my that's my rant on this. And I think it's no, I think it's, I think that's right. And I think um the kind of the image that the image that kind of captures it is um the front page of the Daily Mirror, which is the um the left-wing um, daily tabloid pitched at um, pitched at blue-collar readers, and um, on the eve of the election, they had a um, a front page, and you still can see it if you go look on. Um, it was tweeted by Aaron Bastani. You can still find it if you go look on um, on Google, and it was a series of pictures where it said "for them." Uh, so the idea was that you should vote. So it was pitching to working-class voters because um, that's who reads the Daily Mirror, and it was saying um, you should vote. For um, for kind of people who've been suffering from austerity, people in difficult conditions, um, and it had a whole kind of series of pictures of um, the people for whom you should exercise your vote as an act of compassion on their behalf, and it's astonishingly, um, you know, for what's supposed to be a left wing tabloid, it was astonishingly, incredibly um, blinkered, because you know obviously the right thing was you should vote for yourself, right? I mean, you vote in your own self interest. And um, on the basis of your collective interest as a class, um, that would be the old kind of old fashioned understanding of class politics. But things have got kind of have got to the extent where even the um, the daily tabloid, the daily left wing tabloid can only defend the act of voting in terms of as an act of charity. It offers basically the middle class, the kind of liberal middle class left wing understanding of voting where they vote on behalf of defending the vulnerable. That was the mm. message, and I think that kind of um, that that front page captures exactly what George was um, talking about, which is a, not the idea of defend of um, seeing uh, working class voters as political agents. 
Yeah, there's a phrase of, of Richard Tuck's, which I've I've said in a number of places before, but seeing that the state is the armed wing of Oxfam. And I think this idea of for them, the idea that this, you know, the working class needs needs charity and is vulnerable and is constructed in all of these ways leads to a, a really paternalist form of politics from from Labour. Um, and for all of the many, many problems with the Tory um Tory platform and 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 that their particular way of doing politics and Johnson's as well at least there's some fraternal aspiration this is a point that Andrew um from the full Brexit Andrew made um that there's actually an, a, an attempt to sort of say well you know in a more or less fake way we, you know we're in this together you know let's let's get Brexit done together um and I think that unfortunately that's something which Labour have learned the hard way that you can't um you can't put your politics forward as a politics of helping people less fortunate it always has to be empowering people and always has to be respecting the vote and making that as powerful as possible absolutely i mean it should be by the many rather than for the many but just to complicate the picture ever so slightly there's a whole chunk of the labor manifesto dedicated to empowering people i mean it, it, it explicitly wanted to repeal draconian anti-labor legislation to allow people to strike, for example, in, in sympathy of, uh, or, you know, in mount political strikes. So I think that's quite important. But it's but, a good, but, it's good legislation, but there's no unions to appeal to. Right. You know, if people aren't members of unions, so I mean, the union membership un density, union density is very low. It's basically just the public sector. And people don't have any um, recent experience or maybe even memory uh, maybe even folk memory, let alone individual memory of having participated in, in industrial action. And they only experience industrial action as an inconvenience, say, when it's done by train drivers or tube drivers. Um, then they have no kind of, uh, they have no understanding or um, connection to the political significance of that kind of legislative offer. Um, and so, and so, and I think this is the way, you know, either it was what was offered in the Labour Manifesto was either misunderstood or just kind of um, irrelevant, or it could only be experienced because they denied their, um, there wasn't offered as a model of political enfranchisement. Then everything that was positive about the Labour Manifesto, say greater spending on social services, nationalization of certain key um, utilities and industries, would be experienced as the state showering benefits on you from on high. And I think so it was inevitable that um, uh, more low skilled workers, self-employed people, um, people even in precarious positions, that they wouldn't, that the Labour Party manifesto wouldn't appeal to them despite the kind of patina of um, this kind of shimmering pattern of progressive appeal. Um, so despite the kind of um, what seemed like a kind of old fashioned old labor policies, it was still something which is concocted by hipsters, essentially. It's, well, I, I mean, mean so as, just, just, as, to, just so, I mean, it's interesting that the one people who would definitely have a folk memory of labor militancy, uh, older male yes, voters in yes, the former coal fields, yes. Did decided yes, not to yes. turn out for Labour, decided yeah, or no, even it, voted for yeah. the Conservatives. That's really yeah, yeah, historic. Um, yeah. But but there's another. I, I think I have another explanation. I mean, something that I wrote and posted the other day after the election, which is a question of trust. 
that you can have all the great policies in the world, and it's undoubted that a lot of those policies, for example, rail nationalization, were very popular. In fact, I could probably comment that the rail nationalization did not go far enough because they promised to just let the franchises expire rather than actively nationalize, uh, you know, Virgin or whatever uh, privatized uh, train concession. But anyway, people might like those, but the problem is that in a context of very low trust in politics, in politicians, in political parties, it's very hard to make good policies translate into votes because they're just words on a page. Uh, and they become just words on a page if you yeah, see absolutely. the leadership prevaricating on the Brexit question or otherwise being seen as kind of weak, uh, as untrustworthy, as one of those people who fucked us over in the past. Uh, so, you know, for all that Corbyn and Corbynites would claim, no, we are not new labor, we're different. It, I know that old party betrayed you, abandoned you in the past, and they very much did. Uh, we are different. We're the good guys again. And maybe, maybe that's true. But the problem is that that doesn't work. That's not sufficient. You're not able to win people over by just asserting that you're the good guys or walking and assuming you're the good guys. Because by the way, that's really fucking annoying to po to pose yourself as the good guys. Um, and if you aren't able to back that up and back up those words with actual concrete action and genuine links to people in those constituencies that uh, all those words on a page aren't worth very much. Uh, and I think that's that's something that, that really did for Labour in that regard. Uh, and I think people were willing to place trust in Labour in 2017. Uh, because, and, yeah. and those policies were popular then and Labour had a big surge. Why, but why didn't it happen in 2019? I mean, the main reason is oh, Brexit. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's very, very simple. Uh, that <clears throat> Labour were not seen as trustworthy on on Brexit, which is the most important political issue, um, and that that's that's what what trust means in a in a in a the most important sense is honouring um, the power of the vote and being held accountable to it. And I think you know Johnson already said that he he understands that people have lent the Tories their vote um, to get Brexit done, and so there's a there's a kind of a dim awareness that politics is this um this this link between people and representatives which unfortunately um labor have have just forgotten so related to this uh and and it's the next item on the agenda is uh one of the most polled answers for not voting labor whether they be people who decided who've never voted labor and didn't vote labor or or if they are people who have previously voted labor and defected to other parties whether that be to uh the lib dems or to the conservatives around 40 percent of those say that they did not vote for labor because of the leadership uh, in second place, but significantly down, uh, you know, a fairly distant second place, is that it was their stance on Brexit. And um, only of small minorities, uh, often in single digits, saying that they didn't vote for Labour because of the economic policies. So the economic policies are popular. That's not a reason for Labour's failure. Brexit is a bit of a problem. Well, it's quite a significant problem. And a really big problem is the leadership. But I think that needs to be unpacked because that could contain a whole range of different uh, things beneath it. It could be that they didn't like Corbyn's politics. They didn't like who he is. They didn't trust him. They thought that he is an evil or immoral man. Who knows? So uh, w how would you parse that? Uh, th this polling done by opinion, uh, opinion, excuse me, uh, that it was the, la the, later, the leadership, which was the main reason for people not voting Labour. 
I think it ties into Brexit in as much as um, his prevarication over Brexit, uh, the shilly-shallying, the attempt to maintain the ambiguity of, um, well, the consistent attempt to maintain ambiguity over following the, you know, they said they would uh, respect the results and then they shifted towards, um, under pressure, they shifted towards uh, a second referendum in which many of uh, Corbyn's closest um, supporters and allies said that they would vote for they would campaign for Remain. He said he wouldn't. He would uh, secure a better deal, but then would stay neutral in another referendum. I mean, the Brexit policy was a shambles, confusing, and would rightly give suspicion to anyone who was following even suspiciously, uh, sorry, anyone who was following even superficially, that there was um, complete incoherence and lack of trustworthiness. And I think that increased, it was the prevarication over Brexit that would amplify everything that was um shifty and suspicious about Corbyn as a leader. Um, so I think that was that tied into it. And I think it was the main the main factor in because I mean so there are other kind of um there are other kinds of things which are usually kind of mentioned about Corbyn, such as, you know, supposedly be, you know, his um the idea that he was a terrorist sympathizer, um, anti Semitism and these kinds of issues. And I don't think that they um I just don't think that they're as important. Um and I guess this came to me uh, during a, a political event in which um, a Brexit party, Brexit party member of the European Parliament, Claire Fox, was um, giving a speech when she was standing for the uh, for membership of the European Parliament in a north um, north northwest constituency. Is it, George? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 northwest, yeah. In a northwest constituency, where it came out in her previous, um, as a former revolutionary communist, she had supported a campaign of Irish freedom, and was therefore seen to be um, compromised by association with the IRA and its bombing campaign in England, and particularly um, the Warrington bombing, which happened in that same area for which she was standing as a parliamentarian, and it didn't affect her. Um, it didn't damage her electoral prospects with uh, people who would. Uh, who you could expect to reasonably be suspicious of um, of being involved in um, in an Irish freedom campaign back in the 1980s and 1990s, and in the speech where I where I attended, when which she made this claim, she said um, she openly said uh, you know she knew that it had been in the news, and she invited a crowd of um, mostly I think Tory voters to um, take issue with her if they wished to on the question of um, her support um, for Irish freedom in the past. Nobody did. And it was really striking to me that, um, so for all the claims in the media by which um, Jeremy Corbyn was um, criticised for being a terrorist sympathiser and that this um, his um, invitations to um, IRA, to the um, Sinn Féin to come and have tea in Parliament and all of this, um, that that was kind of the thing that electorally damaged him and made him seem um, insignificant. I don't think because, like I say, it seemed to me that it didn't do that with other people whose whose um, claims for being uh, sympathetic to uh, the cause of Irish nationalism. Other people who had much greater claims to being supporters of Irish nationalism and more consistency on the matter. It didn't damage them. So I don't believe that it damaged Corbyn either. Um, so I think yeah, it I just was want to make, sorry, mainly... I just want to make a point related to this because it relates to the media and a lot of labor blaming of the media and holding them responsible for their lack of success, for having told lies about them. And no doubt the media was very much against Corbyn and the way they treated them. All studies uh, back this up. And it is disgraceful, but it's also 
the name of the game. The capitalist media, even the state broadcaster, is going to be against uh, radical insurgents or socialists. That's the name of the game, and you have to take that as read. And and to assume that you might be treated fairly is to walk into the game of politics with a very naive understanding of power. So not only are you going to be treated quote-unquote, unfairly, uh, that you're not going to have an even playing field. But it's also, I think it overstates the effect the media has. So, for example, the things you've just been referring to, calling Jeremy Corbyn a terrorist sympathizer, I think that plays to Tories who will already be predisposed against that and that might bring out their vote. But I don't know how much that changes someone's mind. I I think the effect must be relatively marginal and especially in today's circumstances where the media is very fragmented, especially for younger voters who consume their media online rather than getting it from TV or from newspapers, there isn't the megaphone of media ownership that used to apply in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. So that media fragmentation and the fact of, as I've already mentioned, a serious lack of trust in politics, which also applies to the media... People don't trust the media, so why? And if you know that people don't trust the media and are very aware of this, why are you so sensitive to what the media says at the same time? It seems to me that it is activists, political activists, especially liberals and leftists, who care much more about the media than anyone else does. And that's a problem because to project that onto other people uh, would be to seriously misunderstand the role that the media plays. It's not a direct projection. I think this is important that it's not saying everybody else cares about the media as much as we do. There's a bit of a, <clears throat> a, a quite a model of the um, working class person as a media consumer that's essentially that they're, they're too gullible, you know, read one thing uh, against Corbyn and are never going to vote for him and all this all this sort of thing. And I think it, it is a way to um, <clears throat> to kind of reach for for Hall or Gramsci or some of these these theorists who have been mis, misused, the, the, the latter one at least, um, and say, right, well, the way to kind of... <clears throat> I guess create a new political program is fu- fundamentally to look in in the media and create a new a new media first and I think that is a that is a big a big big problem and it's and it gets things entirely the wrong way around. So I would add to I mean I agree with what you guys have said and I would add to it which is to say so it's always a it's a kind of um this pathetic plea of uh, being weak and marginal coming from people who are frequently actually very influential figures such as Owen Jones or uh, Paul Mason saying that you know the odds are stacked against them so the things I would add to kind of um, to what both of you have said is there's tremendous tremendous remainder bias in the media um, so and that's you know very kind of evident and it exists across the major newspapers even those that would tend you know even those of the center right I mean um, but also in the BBC. So uh, the idea that um, that the you know that it was kind of even that it was overwhelmed that the odds were overwhelmingly stacked against the left in the election was wrong and also you cannot turn on Sky News uh, the billionaire right the owned by the evil billionaire Rupert Murdoch without seeing Ash Sarkar on it so um, and maybe this you know I mean you will maybe not see this outside of uh, Britain but I mean she's always on Sky News politics so the idea that they have no um, you know that the brave kind of um, Ah, the brave uh, media insurgents are um, penned in and limited to a very narrow kind of places where they can't get their message out is, you know, I mean, it's completely, it's nonsensical. With, it's with a way the, to avoid political accountability. With the exception of politi- of global politics podcasts um, who release episodes to, to Patreon subscribers. Yeah, obviously we are, we are obviously, we are. Um, with the exception uh, that proves the rule. With the exception that proves the rule, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so let me just uh, go through these last uh, points of observations on reasons for, for Labour's defeat uh, before we try to hold ourselves to account for our predictions. By the way, we were wrong, uh, <laughs> just to trail that. Firstly, uh, well, dislike of the leadership. I think one final point on that is that, and this is a point that a former guest Steve Hall has made based on his research, is that amongst uh, especially more traditional working class areas, People really hate the liberal left. They hate progressives. And insofar as Labour represented that, especially through momentum, that might be another reason for defeat. So maybe those socialist policies are popular, but the socialists themselves, or so it's described, are not. And that's a real problem. I don't know how, you know, how you get away from that, though I would suggest that probably a lot of the kind of identity politics stuff is deeply unpopular. And that might uh, help by binning that if you are part of Labour or part of the, uh, the official left. Uh, so I think, I mean, I think it was easy for Corbyn to be portrayed as suspicious and against us because he didn't support Brexit. So I don't think he needed to be a nationalist in order to, um, or kind of pitching to kind of a renewed vision of a integrated, coherent nation. If he had simply been unequivocally um, behind the idea of mass democracy, the majoritarianism, and defending the interests of the left behind who had voted for Brexit. I think that would have been enough for him to, um, for it to cohere the promises, to kind of give a, a core of political empowerment and autonomy to, um, to the Labour manifesto and the promises of increased um, state spending and nationalisation to get away from the problem of them just being um, the kind of making people into the passive recipients of state aid, but giving them, uh, showing that they have meaningful political agency and power. And it also, I think, would have got away from the idea of whether or not he's on our side, because if he had stood for democracy unequivocally, like I say, I think that would have got around the problem of portraying him as somehow suspicious, marginal, subversive, and associated somehow with, um, uh, you know, uh, enemies of, uh, of the nation, or however you so might wish to put it. So I think it, it really depends on a lot here on what you mean by identity politics, as as it always does. But I think the if you're <clears throat> interested in feminist politics or anti-racist politics or um, anything in this area, then the the Labour Party is probably its its platform is one of the worst things that could have happened because it ended up putting the respecting the vote against some of these concerns. And I think and this follows on from Phil's point, and that is just an absolute catastrophe. The, the the starting point has to be democracy has to be a you know class based approach to democracy which respects the vote and which tries to tries to increase everybody's power and then you can say okay <clears throat> what are the the sort of I guess some of the more radical cultural claims that you might want to make but if you counterpose the two then people are going to start to be very very suspicious of some of these cultural claims because they see them as 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 substituted for um, um, democratic demands, which, which, I, and and that's why I think there's, you know, potentially going to be some really long-term um, implications of this election. And if if Labour continue down this this more and more remain or rejoin um, promoting path, that could be a real a real catastrophe for the left. Right. So just to run through the last very quick points, I don't think we have to comment on them. One, that the Remain votes were divided across different parties, which I think, again, shows that Labour's a kind of opportunistic attempt to bridge the gap between its two uh, constituencies, between Leave voters and its mainly Remain membership, uh, failed. And I think it's terrible also because 
you know, even if you, I, I might, I've been pushing the line that Brexit would have won, but even if it wouldn't have won, at least it would have been authentic and democratic. They've kind of sold out on the question, and well, certainly from Cor- Corbyn's point of view, he sold out, and he gained nothing for it, and that's really tragic. Um, the other point, I guess, is that, and, and it's kind of related to this, is that tactical voting, especially in the South, didn't work. So they tried to encourage people to vote Labour where uh, where they were contesting with, with the Tories to get Lib Dems on side uh, and otherwise vote for the Lib Dems. And that wasn't reciprocated and it failed with the, the, the clear showing that many constituents in the South and around London, which they had targeted, uh, did not switch to Labour. And actually the, the, the Conservatives held on, Putney being the only... Uh, the only uh, exception to that. Right, so as to our predictions, we had predicted, just to remind you, listener, if you want to go back and check it out, it is episode 99, it's for patrons only. Uh, Phil predicted a 30 to 60 seat majority for the Tories. Uh, George, I think, predicted something similar. And I predicted a hung parliament. Uh, I was the most wrong out of all of that. Um, so I think, one, we underestimated the scale of uh, the Tory victory. I was shocked when the exit poll came out. Uh, and it, But I think another point we made that we were right on, but I think we didn't push it far enough, was that we made the point that we've been discussing just now about the realignment that's happened about working class voters, especially in their northern and midland strongholds, the so-called red wall, uh, that it would crumble. I thought a couple of important seats there might switch, but I and I don't think any of us expected it to the degree that it actually happened. Uh, that, as we had said, probably these emblematic constituencies, which are sites of the great miners' strike in 84, 85, that those would suddenly go Tory. I mean, that's really, really shocking, genuinely a, a, a political shock. Uh, yeah. So I think we, we um, maybe were, were, sh- were right in, in a little way. We were heading in the right direction, but we weren't even strong enough in our in what we predicted. No, and it was those are also bearing in mind those are strongholds that um, Labour retained throughout all the Thatcher years as well. Um, so they've lost their electoral bastions and they've gained Canterbury and Putney. Canterbury in the previous election, Putney in this most recent one. Um, and that is consistent with the broad pattern of a line of realignment. Um, the Tories becoming now more effectively de facto a party of um, northern old working class um, voters and uh, their usual uh, their usual um, constituents, landlords, the city, um, employers associations and um what have you, and Labour Party becoming the party of graduates, university towns, inner cities, um, the state-dependent middle classes, uh, left-leaning, wealthy left-leaning individuals. Um, so it's uh, consistent with that. But like Alex said, um, we weren't going to. Ex- we didn't expect it to happen so dramatically um, that the Red Wall, as it was as, as it was called, would crumble so quickly and rapidly in um, in the instance of a single election. I expected, I suppose, it to occur over a series of elections. Not that it would happen all at once, but there you go. And I think the yeah. message. I think the message. I mean, I think my my at least speaking for myself, my failure was I think underestimating the working class, which is always a mistake for um, a mistake for anyone claiming to be on the left. 
um, underestimating their uh, the fact that they constituted a dense, solid core of the pro-Brexit vote in 2016, that they're willing to break with the status quo and to leap into the unknown with um, voting for Brexit. And then um, in this most recent election, which was even more of a, where the outcome was even more decisively decided by working class voters than even the Brexit referendum, that they were willing to um, make a bid for political independence and to um, not to be that they were shown that they will not be taken for granted by by Labour. They've switched their support to a different party. And like Alex said, there is, you know, very clearly and very shows very clearly in the polling that they have no trust in the Tories, but that they've um, prized open the dead hand of Labour, which has held on to those constituents and onto working class votes in the North for so long. And I think that is a tremendous thing. And um, and that it was a mistake to underestimate their willingness to break with Labour, and that should be seen as the most um, the most radical outcome of the of this election, and the most progress possibly the most progressive outcome of of the election as well. Yeah, I think that yeah, really nicely put that there is there is something um, there is a core of a of a good result here that it's and it's not a it's not a tragedy, and I, I know. I don't know if many of our listeners, but certainly a lot of um, <clears throat> friends, colleagues, contacts of of mine were were not in the best of moods on on Friday after the election. But um, I guess the it, what really what's really going to be decisive now is how the left reacts to this realignment and whether there is a doubling down, particularly in cultural terms, and a, a demonization, continued demonization of that um, Tory coalition that seems well, to be it's already forming. happened well i mean if it, if it i mean if if um left liberals really want to remain out of labor to remain out of power for a long time then the way to do that is to double down on that split because there's never going to be a majoritarian a successful majoritarian project which only relies on as you said basically the kind of public sector workers and a few kind of um academics for all, all their worth so i mean it's a really the stakes are now ex- extremely high to see what um <clears throat> whether labor kind of wants to cement that potential realignment and whether some of actors around labor want to 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 double down on that on that split within the electorate so let's actually move on to this question of reactions and reactions amongst the left to, to this defeat what have we seen so far of course you get the usual things on election night of people lashing out and whatever and i mean you can read only as much as you want in, in, into those unguarded comments uh of course you get idiots like uh consistent idiots like paul mason coming out and blaming the old the male the white and so on uh in this kind of uh, chasing this mirage of this new leftist base of of multi-ethnic young university students down mobile middle class and you know by all means those uh, those sorts of constituencies should be targeted by by the left and but the problem is, is that it's clearly not sufficient to form uh, a, a basis for for an electoral majority uh, much less for a genuine taking of power and, and restructuring of society it's more than that, though, because it's also that those people who Paul Mason's targeting, so he's targeting kind of intersectionalist middle class graduates and also targeting service sector kind of multi-ethnic um, new working class in the inner cities, the people who are cleaners at LSE 
um, the people who kind of are janitors and security guards and serve in bars, swanky city bars, and are um, clean, you know, clean out buildings early morning or late at night in the big city offices in London and so on. He's pitching to them, but they also need um, their democratic rights to be respected, which is to say that the, their interest is in majoritarianism, their interest is in democratic sovereignty, their interest is in popular accountability, all of the things that Paul Mason doesn't stand for because he was happy to pitch them to the European Union and to say that their interests were aligned with the European Union, unlike those um, gammon racists in the north who support fracking, which is exactly how he characterized them in one of his um, post-election tweets. So, um, you know, the kind of so-called, the you know, what Mason calls the new working class, they had just as much of an interest in um, democratic sovereignty and in their having majoritarianism as uh, a respected political principle as anyone else, including um, northern working class voters who Mason disparaged. I think, you know, not to, to refer to ourselves too much, but the idea of knobs, um, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, it's it comes out at, at points like this where there's a, where there's a, sh a shock. Um, and I think you did see in some of the more unguarded um, and Twitter is is a great and a terrible medium um, in this respect because you know it goes straight from somebody's brain into the into the world. So you see essentially their political um, subconsciouses uh, at work. But yeah, you really did see some some extraordinary um, reactions to this and how how willing I think a lot of um, people who normally put themselves on the left were to to disregard people the, the the people or just generally say no, you know this is a case of victory of fascism of racism of all this stuff which Johnson regime does not does not obviously rec um, represent um and that's yeah I think that's it it it, it comes from a deeper place of of um basically reflecting on left politics in in Britain in the last few decades and seeing well this is not something that we it, that seems we can get our projects it's not something that we can get a mass of people behind so do we really need people do we really need democratic power behind what we're doing or do we just need to take the right positions so yeah the reactions i think have been very very revealing i think it might be worth shouting out to the people who were right on this um people who are on the left of labor but who uh, are levers and who warned uh, about what might happen if Labour backed a second referendum. Uh, the pe people around Tribune magazine, for example, uh, the left campaign, um, people like Eddie Dempsey, um, but, and some blue Labour types as well. Um, but many of them obviously continue to back Labour through this election. And I think what happened now will prompt, I imagine, uh, a lot of soul searching and a lot of critical thinking about uh, what to do about this. And I don't know whether they will be decisive uh, in orienting the Labour Party in its new direction post-Corbyn. Uh, some of the other people vying for dominance over the Labour Party are the kind of centrists and Blairites who are, will mainly claim that it was Jeremy Corbyn, the person that wasn't, was disliked, and more importantly, that the radical economic policies were unpopular. I think we've already dealt with that. I think they are popular. Uh, and of course, the failure of uh, I think Phil pointed out earlier that the proof of this is uh, the Tories even abandoning a kind of hardened neoliberal policy in favor of a more kind of one nation Toryism. But I think it's also evidenced in the failure of all these centrist projects uh, <laughs> like uh, the independent group and so on. And as well, even the Lib Dems 
um, who surged in the polls, becoming the party of Remain, but then that proved to be just a momentary surge, which then dissipated. So, I, and I, their leader lost her seat as and well, and to the Scottish nationalists as well. Exactly. So I, I think th- those centrists uh, might end up winning back the Labour Party. We don't know, but uh, I think it's very clear that that won't lead to electoral success. Um, as to the blue Labour types, I mean, I've seen some discussion on this. Um, blue Labour, for those who aren't aware, are uh, socially conservative but uh, more social democratic uh, faction within the Labour Party. It's interesting because old fashioned, old fashioned social democracy associated with um, the so with the fire brigade union leader Paul Embury, um, Lord Maurice Glassman, who's kind of the theorist of he was in, um, put into the House of Lords by Ed Miliband, the previous Labour leader, and is kind of the um, the theorist and in, one of the intellectual gurus of Blue Labour, along with Jonathan Rutherford, and they have other um, other supporters. Um, and we're very uh, kind of closely associated also with um, John Milbank, who is a wealthy entrepreneur, who is a strong uh, supporter of the Labour Leave campaign. John John Mills, not John John Milbank. John Mills, sorry, sorry. To... John Milbank. Yes, he's, he's a somebody th- else entirely. He's a a, the- the- a reactionary the- theologian. theologian. Yeah. yeah, but um, no, I think I think Blue Labour are, are quite interesting because there's there is this argument. It's it's one of the responses to to what happened, which is. That okay. So what what the working class really wants is um, social conservatism and then um, and then economically politically more radical um, more radical positions. And I think it's there is something to be taken seriously here. But also it does seem to that this kind of explanation, which is also um, consonant with David Goodhart's in his um, Road to Nowhere book, it does seem to to take these cultural um values as as quite static um and it's not i mean i'm I'm not sure that's the way that i would respond to to this defeat by labor i would say that in fact labor were just not radical enough in the in the democratic sphere in the in the in politics it's not about cultural um policies being being the most important at all i'm not sure that's what blue labor would say anyway but that's what really did for labor and i mean it's almost becoming a broken record at this point but you can't you can't have radical politics or radical policies in any other area unless it goes through um making the political sphere as wide as possible and making people's um political participation primarily through the vote as meaningful as possible i'd go further i mean i think the point is that the um political leadership at this point would mean um taking advantage of the working class bid for political independence from the Labour Party and running with that rather than um, rather than trying to recapture it for the Labour Party. Um, the working class of northern, northern constituencies have done us a tremendous service by shattering the hegemony of the Labour Party. And I think that's to be that political leadership in this circumstance would mean um, going with the grain of that rather than going against the grain of that. And I think with Blue Labour, I mean, they essentially, it's uh, its essentially, though they have, you know, they have, um, I'm more sympathetic to many of their arguments and to them infrequently as individuals um, compared to the intersectionalist left. But ultimately, I think they effectively want um, uh, the kind of uh, working class in um, the white working class to be another identity group, effectively, and they just want to kind of uh, carve out a higher standing for their preferred identity group to all the other identity groups. They treat the working class as another identity, um, you know, kind of, uh, and they want to return to um, 
a chimerical mirage of old and old social democratic working class. And that won't, it simply won't hold up in the 21st century. So I think they're, uh, though they've been vindicated and their, their instincts are more democratic than of the intersectionalist left. Nonetheless, their political vision, I think, is something that would be taking us backwards rather than forwards. Right, so to round this out, let's take some wider reflections. So firstly, this seems to be the end of the left populist experiment in Europe. We have, as we've discussed a number of times on this podcast, a series as historic treason, uh, the seriesification, uh, which has followed pasalkification. So that is to say, the devastation of the old social democratic parties, which we see with the Socialist Party in France or the SDP in Germany, Uh, has now also affected the left populist challenge which emerged in the wake of the global financial crisis and especially as of 2011 in Europe. That's done for Syriza. La France Insoumise is languishing in the polls in France. Podemos is in government, yes, but sustaining the establishment socialist party there. Um, So in Europe, at least, this this project seems to be over. Britain offered a slightly novel take on the left populist approach, which was that it happened within an established social democratic party. It gave new life to an old social democratic workers party. And yet, and yet, despite the fact that you have more formal structures, which maybe should help deal with the contradictions of left populism, which is sort of an assemblage of different constituencies, not based as the old social democracy was in the power of organized labor, um, but drawing from a whole range of different constituencies, it nevertheless ended up being shipwrecked on that precisely on that division because it tried to incorporate fundamentally different tendencies. It tried to incorporate, on the one hand, the old traditional working class, which had mostly voted leave, and younger, um, generally more downwardly mobile middle class constituencies, uh, which were voted remain. So that seems to be the end of that. And the only one left standing, I guess, in this left populist guise, or at least in this historical moment in which the main left challenge in the most advanced countries is called left populism, is Bernie Sanders. Uh, so what do we think are the lessons, I guess? I think it's Trump 2020. Um, I think he's going to win. And I think so he's basically the US Democrats are the last skittle left. Um, and I can't see them standing, mainly because um, I think uh, that, well, for a number of reasons. Firstly, the Democrats have pitched themselves hard behind this catastrophic um, attempt to impeach Trump. Uh, which is rather than making their case to the voters, they're keeping it tightly. They're keeping their attempt to um, contain and overthrow Trump within the architecture of the U.S. state, tightly under the control of the political elite. I think it will be a disastrous strategy in the face of um, in the face of the voters and plays into Trump's um, hands as casting himself as an anti-elitist, um, anti-establishment figure. So that's one thing. The other thing I think is um, that Bernie himself is ill, grave. You know, I mean, he's had stents put in, um, had a heart attack, and he's an old man. So it's very hard, I think, to ask voters to vote for someone who could ever cope to be a one-term president. Um, that'll be a very hard pitch. But beyond that, uh, the main problem is that um, Bernie isn't any um, socialist in the tradition of um, Eugene Debsey. 
who sought to carve out political independence for socialism in the US away from the Democratic Party. Well, Bernie's has been has whined, pitched for people and brought them back to the Democratic Party. And I think that's the main political problem for Bernie is the fact that he's been an outrider for the Democrats. And so he's reinforced democratic hegemony rather than breaking with it. Yeah, I think there's there's three points maybe to try and try and be uh, brief. This I guess this election result suggests for particularly from American politics, perhaps with 2020 coming up. The first is that the moral register doesn't work. Talking about being the good guys over Brexit, over politics, people don't like the good guys. They don't like being morally hectored. Um, similarly, cultural war against working class doesn't work. Secondly, you have to. I mean, it's just it's just crucial. To make it to make any sort of socialist society has to go through a democratic route you make the democratic um argument first and then the, and then the socialist policies follow and the third is that i think the the democrats are in a difficult position or, or socialists within or closely related to the to the democrat party um are in a difficult position but don't give an inch to the the pmc arguments um i think this is a point that anton front of the pod made that it's 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 important to recognise the class basis of 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 those people and where they're arguing from, and to to reject um, in as um, <clears throat> robust terms as possible the way that they will try and steer the party, because it, there is still a small hope, I think, for left populism in um, in America, but it's that the uh, window of opportunity is 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 closing quite quickly, I think. I would co-sign all those points and add one extra element, which is just that this left populist attempt rides on a general situation of the disorganization of the working class, no uptake in labor militancy in most places, and having to deal with the fact that there's no social movement and trying to confect it through politics will always encounter certain difficulties. Uh, I would like to see it succeed, but I think these very long-term uh, declines and breaking up of old blocks means that it's not entirely straightforward how this should be done. But just to underline, I guess, the last point that George made is that if you want to try to make it work, do not cede an inch to the professional managerial class liberals within these organizations, be it the Labour Party, be it the Democratic Party, because they literally fucked the Labour Party's chances in winning this election. So that's it. That's been the last episode of the year, unless you happen to be a $10 and upwards uh, Patreon subscriber, in which case you will get the early release of our reading club. We're discussing Twilight of the Elites very appositely, uh, a book by Christophe Julie, uh, which mainly deals with France. Will be It's a short book, so if you want to read that and send in your questions before we discuss it, please feel free to do so through any of the regular avenues. Right, that has been your Alpha Bunga Bunga for the year. If you've liked us in 2019, how about a Christmas present? It would be lovely if you could review the show or actually even better, recommend us to your friends and enemies. If you've not checked out our 100th episode anniversary show, What Was the End of History? Now's a good time to do so. I think that our 14 guests provide some provocations to think more deeply about historical possibilities today. Right, roll on 2020. Things are about to get a whole lot more interesting. We are not here to make you happy, but hopefully provide some realistic analysis of things as they are and as they might be. Wishing you happy holidays and that you may come back refreshed for more. Catch you next year. Bye-bye.
again. 